Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crawford Talks. I am Jake Kaplan, and I'm joined, as always, by Mike Meltzer. But today, we're also joined by The Athletic's Evan Drellick. Evan, thanks for being our third wheel today. I miss Boomtown Coffee, Jake. <laughs> Was that where you would be doing work in non when you lived in Houston in non-pandemic times? No, I'm not good at doing work outside of the apartment. Uh, you should be able to get yourself to a coffee shop if it's like the off-season or the strange setting that we're in now and, and make yourself work outside of the house. But I, I was never good at that. It was just one of those spots I frequented more regularly than, than others. Evan, what's it like in New York City right now? Well, that would uh, suggest I leave my apartment, which fortunately I'm in a position that I, I don't have to leave my apartment too much. Um, you, you do hear sirens. That's probably the, the noticeable eerie part that other people have talked about and written about. Um, it, it's, got, it's lessened since you know March and April. It's, it's not quite as uh, haunting, but you know, people are out and about. Everybody's wearing masks. I, I figure it's like that in Houston, although I, maybe there's a, a little bit uh, less adherence to the mask thing in Houston. I don't know. Jake, I don't know if you've seen this this past weekend. I've driven around and like you, I think people are doing mostly a decent job, but I I don't think the mask participation is probably where it needs to be. I'll I'll, I'll just kind of put it that way. Yeah, I I stay inside, so I I don't really know. Um, <laughs> but I hope people are wearing masks. I don't know. I I see what's walking by my window, and some of them wear. Some people in my uh, apartment complex are wearing masks, and some aren't. So. Uh, I'm probably the not the best judge of this right now, given how how little like Evan. I'm I'm basically staying inside. Um, unlike Evan, I'm actually riding my Peloton and exercising. Hey, I did 30 <laughs> minutes yesterday. <laughs> I'm, I'm That's proud not of bad. You. <laughs> All right, so let, let's kind of dive in here. So, Evan, uh, we're obviously going to talk a lot about the reporting that you've done, that you and Ken Rosenthal have done for the Athletic over the course of the last month. You guys, you don't need me to say this, but you guys have done an, an awesome job. So, let's kind of start broadly with the possible return of baseball is your I know other writers have said that they feel like it will be happening are you optimistic are you pessimistic or are you kind of in a wait and see mode about whether baseball will actually return in 2020 I believe we are going to see baseball games at some point this year and the way it stands now is they expect to start in July what I don't know and I don't think anybody could know is whether they're going to be able to finish out a season you know, what happens if somebody gets sick? Uh, do they play a certain number of games and then have to halt everything? Do we actually get to a playoffs, an expanded playoffs, a World Series? That That's the linchpin to me. It's not whether they're going to try. It's whether they can finish. This feels, correct me if I'm wrong, but this feels, we're, we're speaking on Monday, May 11th. This feels like a big week for some reason. I, is it because Rob Manfred's going to, you know, offer his proposal finally. We, we, there's been all this talk about what, what MLB wants to do, but they haven't actually sent over a proposal to the players' union yet, right? Yeah, it's that we, we know generally now what the plan is because there was all this talk for weeks about the different possibilities. And by the way, the, the notion of there being one plan here, yeah, I guess that's true, but in reality, it's going to be a plan that includes many different contingencies. You, you have to have ahead of time some idea what you would do if, you know, let, let's say a certain market is unplayable or, or becomes unplayable. Like you start games in, uh, let's just say Cleveland, and then Cleveland becomes shut down. Well, you got to have somewhere you can go. Uh, so they, they've 
included a lot of different smaller plans within this larger plan. But yeah, it is a big week because we finally get to that moment of this is what Major League Baseball wants to do or, or would like to do. And they're about to propose it to the union and that could be messy. So what's going to happen, Evan, when MLB inevitably, as part of the first proposal early this week, says, hey, the players need to take pay cuts because we're not going to have any fans in the stands? The first thing that's going to happen, likely, is that the union is going to say, you have to show us your books. Uh, You have to prove to us that you are in this financial distress that you are suggesting you are. Otherwise, we're not going to revise this. And some of this hinges on this technicality about what that March agreement said. So it's a 17-page document, and there are different sections in it. There's a section dedicated to compensation. The compensation in in that section makes clear they are to be paid prorated on a a per-game basis based on what they would make normally. Now, in other sections, including scheduling, there's mention of economic feasibility and, and a good faith review of whether or not these games could restart. So certainly from the union's perspective at the moment, the issue is not player compensation. It's whether the economics uh, would work. And so that that's kind of the entree to the discussion. Like they're sitting there saying, we've figured out compensation. If you want us to revise that part of it, uh, it, it kind of puts the burden of proof on the league um, with the entree of, Yes, compensation is figured out, but it is not economically feasible to play the games, or so they are suggesting. What are the odds that that the owners would want to would, would be uh, amenable to opening up their books? Well, these are extraordinary circumstances. I would, in normal circumstances, zero. Right? It, you know, this is this is the hard part about writing on these subjects normally, and and. Uh, you know, we try when we we do write about them to acknowledge. We don't know. The most we can do is take people's word at it. And you know, there's some public financials out there, like the Braves are owned by Liberty Media. Liberty Media is public, so you can look up their 10K. And um, you know, there are some numbers in that about the Braves' revenue. Um, but otherwise, you're kind of at the mercy of the different parties. Or or if uh, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have someone who can kind of reveal to you. Um, what the actual numbers are, but you know, verifying these things are are really tricky. So the owners, if indeed they're in a position that they are saying they're in, maybe they do have to put together some extended or, or you know furthered look at their financials that they they don't otherwise provide the union. They're, the union does get numbers normally as part of revenue sharing, but mm-hmm. they're not complete. You know. The, the union, for example, has no idea what the individual media contracts say. They don't know hmm. uh, what the Astros contract with Root says or what uh, the Fox contract with MLB says. And maybe maybe they would give some information the league would, but wouldn't go that far. You know, So th- there's a lot they could provide. Whether they provide all of it, eh, I doubt it. Wouldn't it seem to you guys like a PR disaster if it was feasible to at least try and play 
half of a season, 80 games, 82 games, whatever it is, and then it falls apart just because of this stuff that we're talking about now, the money, it, that seems like that would be a bad look for Major League Baseball just across the board. Yeah, it'd be terrible. The, the look of it, the PR perspective would be terrible. Now, the different sides don't like the pressure that comes with that naturally. Why would they? Um, because it, it, it suggests that one side or both should not fight for what they believe is correct, right? It, it becomes, mm-hmm. I, and I think this usually plays out more from the player's side, where, where the public has no stomach for a fight. That's true. Uh, but then is the choice to the union to simply accept whatever they're being offered? You know, and, 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 and so it becomes political in, in, a, in a sense, the, 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 the phrasing of these things. And these are the kinds of things I, I think about when I'm writing these stories. Um, you know, the, the specific wording matters. You, you're right that it would be a PR disaster, but then you got to get into the question of, well, whose fault is it? You know, who's in the right? And, th- and that's, that's a more complicated debate. With, with MLB um, offering up their proposal to the union as early as Tuesday, is, do we expect this, um, I don't want to say battle, but this nego- negotiation over the salary component of it to begin really this week? I would think pretty quickly because if they want to have spring training in June, as is our understanding, they want to play games in July, you just don't have a ton of time. Mm-hmm. So, so intuitively, you, you've got to start hammering away at this uh, quickly. You know, whether that means you know, on this Zoom call on Tuesday, they're going to be batting proposals back and forth. No, but it can't linger that long, just logically. How closely are they looking at what other leagues are doing like the NBA? I think they're getting all that kind of information. Uh, you know, NBA, soccer, uh, what's going on overseas? I mean, why wouldn't they? Right? You know, yeah. both the league and the union have um, independent experts, people that they're talking to about the health side of it. You know, and, and that's that's going to fold into this argument, uh, certainly for the players, that we should be receiving something equivalent to hazard pay. Right? Uh, what? Why are we going to risk ourselves and? Even if they get the economics worked out, you're still going to have players, uh, or, or I presume you're going to have players who are going to not want to do it. You know, Ken Rosenthal wrote the piece uh, on Monday about uh, players who might be at greater health risk. Um, so, so there's the whole economic side, but then there's the other half of the discussion uh, for the players of do we even want to be out there and, and what is that risk worth, basically. Yeah. Uh, and as much as we talk about the players, like I think we also should be talking more than we have been about all the people around baseball who are essential to baseball that are not players and are not, um, you know, in their 20s and 30s. Um, there, you know, there are managers and coaches who are older. There are a lot of these clubhouse attendants have had those jobs for a long time and are not uh, are not super young. Um broadcasters, you know, there's there's a lot of older people in more at-risk age brackets who don't seem to be getting a lot of attention in these discussions. Um, like, I, that's what, that's my, I've probably become more pessimistic about 
um, a season being completed recently, and that's that's a big reason why. I just feel like uh, like what are they going to do for for all those old, all older people? I mean, you think about in the Astros, for example. Dusty Baker's 70, Brent Strom is 71, Gary Pettis, I think, is 62. Like, and that's just three coaches. So, like, how is MLB going to um, deal with with the higher, you know, higher at-risk um, age brackets? I don't know at this point what their, their – the, the specifics for handling those people would be, but you're a thousand percent right that that's – a fear and a concern that uh, they, A, I think they are looking at, but B, probably should be talked about more, you know, umpires as well. Um, Mm -hmm. The people who have to make a stadium run, even if it's on a limited capacity where you're not letting fans in, well, you still have to have people at at the park. Um, So you you can have this idea of a skeleton crew and, and the bare minimum, but, even if you reduce the number of people at a stadium down to to the bare minimum, you're still going to have some range of of ages that are involved. And and the question I can't quite shake is if, if the worst case scenario plays out where someone in the baseball family, be this an umpire player or whatever dies from coronavirus, um, you know, after a season starts, you know where where a situation is believed to be uh, someone contracted it through playing baseball or or, mm-hmm. or through the process. Um, what does that do for society? Because we're talking about baseball as this we need it back. It, it, it's our national pastime, and I certainly agree with with that uh, on some level. But then there's the downside of well, what if it doesn't work and the worst comes to pass? Um, what is the impact of that on people and society? Uh, and and it, it just talking about it now, for me, it sounds incredibly discouraging where you were looking to baseball to be this hopeful thing that shows us we can return to normalcy. And then what if it proves that you can't? Doesn't that set us back quite a, quite a ways? Uh, I know that you guys, you guys both have obviously great sources within Major League Baseball. Like some of these older people, whether they're managers people on coaching staffs, umpires, is the sense that those guys are scared or are they feeling like, hey, let's at least give this a shot? Like, do you guys, on this topic that we're discussing right now, do you sense among the among the people like in that category we're talking about, are they scared right now? What What's the sense? Even amongst players, you, you've had people come out and, and say that they would have to think about it. I think Colin McHugh uh, mm-hmm. uh, made a reference to it. Uh, in a podcast recently, maybe that was with Mass Live, if I'm remembering properly. Um, even I think amongst media, you, th- there's a question for you know, would you be comfortable being out there? Uh, and, and it's it's a question for for everybody in their daily lives, right? I I don't think any person, no matter whether you're in baseball or not, escapes that right now, and and it gives you a greater appreciation for those people who are still doing their regular jobs leaving the house, right? You know, the, 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 the postmen and women and um, you know, the people who, who don't have the, the luxury at the moment of, of staying home and, and the risks that they're taking on. I, I, everybody, I think, goes through that individual calculus. Yeah, I agree. I think everyone's, you know, it, it, when it comes to baseball, everyone's going to have 
their own opinions that are going to be slightly different and their own feelings about it, just like we do in our daily lives. Like we talked about at the top of the show, some people are, um, you know, adhering to the, the stricter guidelines more than others. So I think it would, everyone's kind of got their own feelings on how to uh, manage life uh, in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, I think it would, it would, it's, but I, yeah, I, you're right, Evan, like, if players are coming out and saying that they're not sure and they'd have to think about it, like, I don't know that that should be pretty alarming. I think for MLB to hear. There are just so many questions right now. And this goes back to your point about this week being big that we don't have answers to. Um, and, and, you know, we keep batting them around ourselves, but I assume that, that MLB has started to, to put together answers to all these what-ifs. Uh, and, and so once we get that, you know, it's one thing to know, yeah, they want to do regional schedules, right? They want to play 81, whatever, 80, 70, 78, 82 games. has to be an even number. That's all great. But, but really the, the piece that we don't have yet is the specific contingency planning and exactly how they would address all these medical concerns that we're talking about. And until they remove the mystery from that, you know, our, our, our minds are just going to keep spinning. And it's, it's, it's a sad state of the world, you know? <laughs> Evan, is the sense that they need testing for COVID every single day? See, I, I, I think that's, I think you're in the right ballpark, but I can't say I know right now exactly what it would be. And, and that's, that's what I'm referring to with those kinds of specifics. They, they know that they would need heavy access to tests. Uh, and and I, I think the feeling is they would be able to get them. Um, and it, it does open that bigger picture question of why is baseball going to have access to tests? It's another PR when, part of it, right? Yeah. And some of that, where I'm, I'm not an expert at this point, we require a little bit more research, but uh, the availability of tests, it, it, some of it could be a, a supply concern, but some of it could simply be a processing concern like where the number of tests are technically available, the, the actual you know, paraphernalia or whatever that you need to do these, um, but you need centers and people to process it. Um, I, they would not be able to proceed if they were not confident that they would have adequate testing. So at this point, that can be reasonably assumed. The frequency of the test, I don't know. Uh, and that's one of those we got to wait on. I have a theory I want to run by both of you guys because I, I think I have this theory and seemingly nobody does. And I could be totally dead wrong about this. Evan, you mentioned it, the, the PR part, that there is the sense, especially I see this on Twitter and other parts of social media, that, well, it's going to upset people in the country if in a sports league there's access to a lot of testing and in the country there is not. I thought that also in March, and I'm kind of starting to disagree with that because I just see like in Houston where Texas has opened up to basically 25% capacity of restaurants, and there seems to be this push um, for certain reasons online to open things up. And right now, I got the sense in a place like Houston that if you got sick, you can get a test. But there's not mass access to testing as in if I'm asymptomatic, it's going to be hard for me to get a test because I probably shouldn't get one right now. I think people seem to be so desperate for sports as a harbinger of hope and, and other things and, and a return to normalcy that I actually think the American public as a whole would actually be okay if Major League Baseball 
or the NBA or the NFL had access to that kind of mass testing and we didn't. Am I, and I'm saying at this stage, based on the arguments that I see online, am I crazy for this theory? No, I think that's generally accurate. There's going to be a portion of the population, you're going to see columns written questioning uh, the fairness of that scenario, but you're probably right that most people would just be happy to be able to turn on the TV. Uh, it, the, the, the idea of fairness plays into all these business of baseball topics so frequently. Um, it's in everything we talk about, whether it's, it's money, well, what would be fair uh, for the players? And, and, and so it's something I think about very often. Um, and I think people, I said this on uh, the other podcast with Andy McCullough and Mark Carrig, you know, people look to baseball to kind of be this idealistic um, conduit for fairness uh, that might not exist elsewhere. But that's not everybody. You know, it, it, it really is person to person or, or outlook to outlook with that. So, yeah, I think you're right that most people would just be happy that, that baseball is back. Uh, but there would still be a, a part of the population that's wondering about that other side of it. Um, but not to, not to the point that I think you're going to have protests outside of uh, the empty ballparks. <laughs> it would be a pretty bad look for MLB if that was the case. I think we need to have more expanded testing before we get to that point. Um, switching gears a little bit, Evan, um, what do you think the most likely outcome is in terms of, you know, we've heard the Texas, I mean, the uh, Arizona plan, the Arizona, Florida plan, the Texas one, like is, is, it seems like now it's trending towards home ballparks. Um, is that viable for most of the 30 teams? And is that the most likely outcome you think? It's the most likely outcome at the moment because that um, by all our reporting and others reporting as, as well, is indeed what the proposal to the union is going to include um, is playing in, in home ballparks. Again, you'd have to have the contingency of what do you do for certain markets that either at the outset or once you're playing become unplayable if, if you'd have to move for some reason or another. Um, but in New York, it's an outstanding question. You know, could uh, the Yankees, who are certainly as politi politically connected as anybody, um, effectively convince uh, Mayor de Blasio, Governor Cuomo, whoever it is that uh, ultimately has the say, to, to allow them to have games here in the city. Uh, you know, it, it, so th th there's be beyond all the political and money questions, you, uh, beyond all the health and money questions, you have political questions as well. Uh, you know, what do these individual municipalities want to do? And so any plan MLB moves forward with is, is going to have to have backups and backups to the backup. What's the uh, what's the second spring training going to look like? Because you mentioned the home ballparks. Would, it, would they just do it then? Would they what would, would they have games? What, what would that look like right now? That part of, of, of all the. Part that's parts that we understand of the the proposal the union is going to receive remains the cloudiest because there, there was kind of a split between people who thought spring training should be in Arizona or Florida or whether it should be 
in the home parks. So at this moment, I, I can't say with, with certainty what that's going to look like. Um, but it, it, w- it would have to have some resemblance to what the in-season games would look like in terms of uh, safety and, and health. You know, it's not like you're going to start your testing procedures once the regular season rolls around uh, after spring training. You, you kind of have to go from the outset, I, I would think, um, with the, the rigorous approach uh, once you have all these different people together, including those coaches and the umpires and those different at-risk age groups. But on the location of spring training, at this point, I'm not comfortable saying it's definitively going to be one place or the other. I would think that home ballparks would make more sense because you, you limit travel, right? The, argu- the argument for the spring is that, is that those are um, – the, the argument for Florida and Arizona is that those are not necessarily as densely populated areas um, – and theoretically a better controlled environment. It's the same argument in, in a way that people made for um, playing all the games in Arizona uh, or Florida. Um, that, that's, that's just what the, that's what the flip side would be, Jake. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you, how big do you think rosters would be? 45 or so, uh, because wow. there might not be a minor league season. In fact, I'd say it's looking highly unlikely there's going to be one. Um, or, and I say that in the standard sense of minor league baseball, where you have teams across the country. In, in this scenario of a 45-man roster, you might have you know, backfield games, essentially, uh, or, or you know, some sort of... You have to keep players fresh. You're not, gonna, you're not using your full roster on a daily basis. So basically... The major league roster for 2020 would include the equivalent of your triple A team or, or whatever you think you would need for injuries, whatever kind of replacements um, that would be with you geographically. Um, and then you might have the equivalent of a minor league game going on, you know, whether that's just at the major league stadium earlier in the day, you know, what that looks like is, is TBD. But Basically, you, you wouldn't have any call-ups, you know. Nobody's flying in from Tacoma or Round Rock or anything like that. Would the playoffs be, as in kind of the plan that they had floated out, I want to say in late January, early February, uh, expanded playoffs, a couple of wild-card teams, that whole deal? Yes. M- M- MLB was keen to do that before this happened, before the pandemic. And in some way, it's rooted in money. You expand the playoffs. You are providing more content to your national broadcast partners who already have the playoffs. And that kind of makes good on uh, the loss of games that some of them might have had in the regular season. The, the, the TV partners, Fox, ESPN, Turner... It, there's no indication that money has stopped going in to the teams, but at some point you have to make good on that money. Even if, even if um, Fox or whoever, a local RSN doesn't say, Hey, give us our money back because they don't want to do that because they're, they're partners. It's a long-term relationship. 
that money still needs to be made whole at some point, essentially. The, 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 uh, the rights holder still needs to be made whole. Um, where, yeah, we've given you a lot of money, and, and money is, is, was laid out in our original standard uh, contract, but you, you, you weren't playing the games. So you, know, you could see some creativity coming up where the league finds ways to provide other content. You saw that horse competition with ESPN and the NBA. Um, so, yeah, all around, MLB wants the, ex- the expanded playoffs, and we'll see how the um, the union feels about it. I, I don't see why they would object to it, uh, because it, it's the kind of thing that could make this work for everybody economically. You mentioned earlier, we obviously don't have, um, the teams aren't opening their books to us to, to study um all this stuff, but in terms of the TV deals, how much do they vary by team in terms of how much of their revenue comes from the TV versus the gate? And overall, I guess from an MLB average standpoint, how much in your estimation does a team make from the TV deal relative to the gate revenue? So every TV contract is indeed different. The teams that are at a disadvantage particularly so in these moments, are the teams that have high attendance uh, relative to their market and a, probably a lower paying TV deal. The Astros are one of those teams. Um, you know, a team like Tampa, a team like Seattle uh, is in the opposite case where they're not as gate dependent in normal circumstances. And, and this opens up a whole other part of it where the union in that March agreement gave Major League Baseball permission to revise revenue sharing amongst teams. So that already exists, right? We know that uh, the, the, the rich teams pay the poor teams certain uh, amounts of money every year. But to make it work both this year and next year, the union basically said to the league, you can do what you want. You still have to run it by us. We can reject it. But if you need to take money from XYZ market, to, to make this all work, um, go ahead and, and do that. So as has long been the case in baseball, usually it's small market versus big market and, and, and in a way that's going to be the same here. But there, there's a bit more nuance with that um, as they move forward where some markets might feel better about playing uh, in these circumstances than others. There was another part of that question. What was it? I don't know. I just got distracted by you saying nuance. I feel like uh, if the game had commenced, uh, we would be taking a shot right now. (laughs) That's my thing, baby. (laughs) This might be a weird question, but you you were mentioning, I think, about 20 minutes ago, Evan, when we started the conversation about, okay, well, what if, like, Cleveland is shut down? I'm wondering, I've read that, obviously. We've all read that kind of thing. How does that... How does that actually play out logistically? Like when they're trying to figure out, because it's not like they're going to have fans at games this season. We obviously know that part. So when it comes to opening a, a ballpark, whether in San Francisco or Los Angeles or Yankee Stadium or City Field, like are baseball teams communicating with who? The governor, the mayor of that city, the health officials? How does it, do you know how that logistically works to figure out which ballparks would be open or quote unquote shut down? Presumably, the contingency plan would be moving to Arizona or Florida, uh, depending on the market. You could also see a situation where a team just goes to another major league city, okay. Toronto being a, a special case now 
where if there's no international travel, you, you, it's not going to fly. So where do the Blue Jays play? It might just have to be in, a, in another uh, major league city. As far as the communication goes, I would think it really just depends on the municipality. And, and it does. there are a lot of amazing logistical feats going on, but I do occasionally have the thought of, like, of wow, the coordination effort that's going to be involved here uh, is high. But you know, I don't know if in a different market it's the, the county health uh, official who is the leading voice. Usually the governor's office would, would be the, the, the one that um, is kind of the ultimate voice. Uh, so, but there's probably contacts at all these different levels and the individual teams can help with that, right? You, you don't have to have necessarily somebody at MLB Central um, working every single contact with all those different uh, entities. But it, it's a good question. It, it'd be interesting to know. And maybe that's a story idea to, to pursue is exactly who's co- coordinating with who. I just imagine it varies market to market. That makes sense, I think. I Switching gears a little bit, I don't know if I've seen a, a Friday uh, news dump like the one that we saw last Friday in a while with the, the draft going <laughs> to five rounds. Um, seems like universally pretty bad for like the long-term um you know, baseball, like it's just not a good thing for baseball, obviously. How do you think from what, from what, from what you've gathered in your reporting, you know, why couldn't they have done 10 or, or more? It doesn't seem like it would have been that big a difference in the, in the pockets of each team. It's two issues right now. It's cost savings for the owners who are worried about their cash flow, not only this year, but next year. That's, that's how they're looking at it. And, and, that opens up plenty of room for debate. Again, we don't have the books um, where people can just go, they're billionaires. These franchises are, are worth billions. Uh, they have access to loans. They have plenty of equity they can tap into. Um, do they need to do it? It's not so much a question of do they need to do it. It's a question of what are they willing to do? What do they want to do? It'd be nice, I suppose, if it was about, well, they can afford it. They should just do it, but the sport just doesn't work that way. Business people just don't work that way. Um, it might be nice if they did, but it, it's just not uh, how they end up looking at it. The other element is a bit of drawing a line in the sand in labor negotiations. Um, you know, The league made a proposal for 10 rounds of the draft to the union. The union thought it was essentially double dipping, that they were trying to squeeze out more concessions from the players and and the draftees in exchange for those uh, extended rounds to do double the number of rounds this year. And the union flat out rejected it. Uh, The league felt like it was told to uh, basically to shove off. Um, And so the the response there then becomes, okay, well, you're going to live with five rounds. Um, So, it's the economics first and foremost for the owners, but there is an element on both sides of battle lines of how does a negotiation proceed. They, the draft is going to end up being what was outlined in the March agreement. Uh, you know, it's not like they had to reach a new agreement on the draft, but that agreement allowed the league the choice of anywhere from five to 40 rounds, and everybody kind of knew coming out of that agreement that it was going to be five or ten. Um, so the union 
didn't feel comfortable with the idea of double dipping. The one thing about the draft that my mind goes to is it's not so much MLB's fear that these players are going to walk away from the game. That, that's, that's the gamble. That's, everybody's saying, yeah, it's bad for baseball. I agree. It's, it, optically, it looks terrible. Um, but the gamble, the bet that MLB is making is that the players who aren't drafted this year who would have been drafted around six to ten, or six to twenty, or six to thirty, uh, because the draft is going to be shorter than fewer. It's going to be fewer than forty rounds going forward. Uh, MLB is betting that those players will still be available and want to come into the sport in future years. That's the crux of it all to me. Do you lose people from the sport going forward because of this, or is MLB's bet correct that all the players who would want to play baseball? who are talented enough are still going to do it and pursue it. And I don't know that we know the answer to that until this plays out. You know, do you have people who literally change their career direction, whose careers get derailed? I don't know, but it's, it's something that that's the thing to watch. It, it, there's the optics and then there's the practical implication. MLB is betting that the practical implication is not as bad because those players theoretically should just be there next year. And that kind of makes sense, especially based on the age that we're talking about. It's not like it's easy to switch sports at this point. Uh, as far as practical application, uh, Evan, so the Astros obviously have only four picks with the Doc first and second round pick. Do we do we know or just the kind of thing that we look back on five years? Is that something that is going to, as far as the, the picks in the draft this year with five rounds, is that going to hurt a team like the Astros more or hurt them less the five rounds this year in 2020? That's a good question, um, and, and, I, and I had not thought about it ahead of time. In, my instinct is that it hurts them more because it so greatly reduces your, your, your bonus pool. The amount of money that you can allot to players is based on the number of picks you have. So if you're missing the, the largest quantity of money attached to those first two picks, uh, it, it just restricts you. It, 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 it becomes hard to land anybody because you don't have the money to, to mess around with. You, you, you're going to have to get very creative if you're the Astros um, in how you distribute it. I don't know if you want to then sink it all into one, one guy basically and, and uh, sign a bunch of people otherwise under slot or, or do you try to spread around the little money you do have and, and make more bets um, and, and assume that you're better off just having power and numbers, basically. That that you know, do you want kind of three mediocre guys or uh, you know one big guy? It might be the way to look at it. I don't mean to call them the draft prospects mediocre in the first five rounds, but you get my point. That's the that's what the aggregator is going to take from this. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I think I agree with you. I think I, I think in the Astros' case, because their first pick is until seventy two. The, I think the best strategy is probably just to play it straight and take the best player, uh, the the player they think is best at that at that point, rather than like playing around with the bonuses and going all in on one player. Um, but I agree overall. I think you know I did see some some Astros fans in my mentions on Friday celebrating this shortened draft uh, and laughing about it because they think it doesn't hurt them. It helps the Astros. I think it hurts. I think it does hurt the Astros. I think if you 
you know, it's, it's a lot of it with the caveat of, you know, if they go out and sign all these really talented undrafted free agents for $20,000, which I don't think will happen, that changes the calculus. But I think overall, they have less chances to add talent to their system. And their system, as we covered in previous episodes, is uh, as weak as it's been in a while. So I think, you know, if they were in a different position with a stronger farm system, it might not be as a, a big deal. But I do think having less opportunities to to hit on a player, which is essentially what's happening here, uh, I think ultimately it'll hurt them. Yeah. That registers with me. Yeah. Evan, the Red the uh <laughs> the Red Sox Thanks for your thanks for your feedback. <laughs> the uh the Red Sox sign stealing punishment. Uh I think we're now two and a half weeks after that point. Were people in baseball, what do they think of that report? Were they surprised at what some felt were uh, light punishments? What, what was the feeling around Major League Baseball? I, I don't know that the focus was specifically on the punishment so much as the finding. I, I guess they're one and the same. Okay. But the thing that stuck out to most people, including to me, was the pinning of it all on, on one um, rogue employee, right? That's basically what they were describing JT Watkins uh, to be and the feeling that it was something of a departure from the standard that they held the Astros to and and that they had put forth previously of this is on the manager, this is on the GM uh, to make sure that the rules are are known and followed. And, you know, they basically found that the Red Sox went to the reasonable lengths that they could, although they, they did note that uh, that Alex Cora uh, could have done a better job at essentially educating the players. Um, it's hard to escape a feeling with, with this of, I, I should be careful, I'm on an Astros podcast, of something of a political nature, right? Where um, hmm. it, it, if you're Major League Baseball, you don't want this thing to keep going. Indeed, with the Red Sox, uh, were found to do was not as, egreg- as egregious as Houston. You know, if the Astros had two systems, right? They had the the, the trash can banging uh, with the center field camera, which was the most egregious, and then they also did this video room, uh, something similar to this video room conduct that the Red Sox were accused of. That's that's all in the Astros report. Um, I, I I get the sense. Per- I'll put it this way, personally. Um, I think MLB had incentive to not belabor this and to uh, come to a conclusion that would put it to rest, essentially. Um, and that's just my opinion. Uh, I, I think they were fair in so much as they, they clearly dug into it. You know, it's not like they did an investigation that, that appeared to be um, lesser than the Houston investigation. They, they, they put a ton of time and resources uh, into it. But th- there's, there's some sort of intellectual disconnect between the outcome in, with Boston and the outcome with the Astros. I don't think there's any escaping that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the the evidence we've talked about this in the podcast previously, but like in the Astros case, there was so much visual and audio evidence in addition to the reporting. 
in this case, there was none of that. And so they're just going off of what they can gather in their conversations. With it's the a players. much harder investigation. There's no question about that because you're dealing with the clubhouse culture of the, the, the code of silence that exists there. Uh, you don't have those on-field videos with the trash can banging audible that you had uh, with Houston. Uh, but again, they did, they did get it, right? They did prove that the misconduct that, that Ken and I reported took place. But then it becomes a question of how do you look at that misconduct in relation to what the Astros did? Uh, and and it, it is appropriate to me to think of it as lesser because, it, 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 again, it was kind of half or, or a third of the scheme in Houston in terms of egregiousness. Um, and that's just me spitballing numbers. There's no way to put a I number on that. Lower than that but. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um, so, you know, it, you can't say they, 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 they swept it under the rug, uh, at least in full. Um, but there's a very tidy outcome here, right, where everybody's mm-hmm. saying, yeah, it's, it's the one guy's fault, which sits with me in a way that's hard to kind of uh, accept, you know, and, and, and um, I don't think I'm alone in that. Something that just kind of came to my mind because you you know these people and, and you know baseball obviously at such a high level. Let me throw a couple names at you, uh, Evan. AJ Hinch, Jeff Luno, Alex Cora. Obviously adjusting for the pandemic, whatever happens. Uh, if and when do these guys work in Major League Baseball again? The one who would appear to me to be in question is Jeff Luno. Um, I think AJ Hinch and Alex Cora will work in the sport again. The, the fact that Rob Manfred and the commissioner's office took to task Luno and the, and the culture in Houston so directly uh, in the report would indicate that um, there could be opposition to it. But you know, over time, uh, time, time heals a lot of things. And, and you do have to remember that there, there was a lot of smart, baseball that that Jeff implemented smart operating procedures amongst uh, some that were not smart and some that were problematic and, and detrimental um, so I think Hinch and core both will have chances I'm not saying that Jeff won't but if I were to, to rank them as as most questionable Jeff is the one um, that I, that I could see at the least having to, to wait the longest, if indeed he he wanted to do it again, and who knows what what the case is there, um, but I, I I would be confident in saying that Hinch and Core both will manage again. To kind of bring this conversation full circle before we let you go, what do you think fans and readers and listeners of this podcast should be looking out for this week in particular? Um, like, if you give us like a Cliff Notes version of what we need to know for this week. And what to look out for by the end of this week, what might happen? I'm going to answer it in the lens of what, what seems really interesting to me, which is this idea of revenue sharing in the sport. Revenue sharing is something that goes on in the NBA, NHL, and NFL. It's attached to a salary cap. That is the exact thing that the players have fought against for eternity in baseball. It's the central reason we had the 1994 strike. MLB is going to make a proposal to the union that includes revenue sharing 
with the players. I'm not talking about the, the, the revenue sharing that's already in the sport where the teams are sharing money. They're, they're, they're saying literally, we want our economic system to be a split of the money we take in in 2020. Uh, and the reason for that from the league's perspective is it's too hard to predict how many tickets are going to be sold. You know, what if we end up having some games at 25% capacity? What if we have 40 you know, in the later months? What if we have no fans in the stadium the entire time? Uh, you know, it is possible that we get to a point where they do let fans in, at least in a limited capacity. Um, so the league is interested in, in splitting revenues. At the end of next year, the CBA is up. Mm-hmm. The union's going to be suspicious that um, any attempt to, to do revenue sharing this year is part of a long-term plan to switch baseball to a salary cap. So is there a way that the economics in baseball can be drastically altered for only one year for this year so that we can have baseball for this year. Is it, is it a necessary um, and B what are the long-term implications of that? Uh, So that's just where I'm, I'm geeking out a little bit is it, it, it's, it's a really interesting point for me in labor relations in baseball. Uh, end rant. You are a geek, and at, <laughs> and make sure you guys check out uh, Evan's article about this from uh, Thursday, May the seventh, about this fight about the revenue sharing that we might see over the course of the next week and probably longer. He is Evan Drellick. You guys obviously know him. He has covered the Houston Astros uh, for the Houston Chronicle, also the Boston Herald, WEEI, MLB.com. He is obviously covering uh, the business of baseball for the athletic. Evan, thank you so much for joining us on the Crawford Talks. Have some boomtown for me. <laughs> Will do. When, when it's safe. Yes, when it's safe. Wear your mask. Wear your mask.